Welcome to the New Books Network. London, 1382. The Crown's treasury, the most secure chamber in the kingdom, has been robbed, and five guards brutally killed. Brother Athelstan is set to investigate, but he has problems of his own, including a body found in the nave of his parish church. Join us as we speak with Paul Dougherty about his recent Brother Athelstan medieval mystery, The Hanging Tree. You're listening to New Books in Historical Fiction, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Paul Dougherty is the author of more than 80 highly acclaimed historical mysteries. He studied history at Liverpool and Oxford Universities and is headmaster of a school in Essex. Paul, welcome to New Books in Historical Fiction. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. So, Paul, tell us about yourself and about your journey to writing medieval mysteries. Yes, my I was born in Middlesbrough, North Yorkshire. I went to different schools, went to university at Liverpool, and went to uh, Oxford where I got my doctorate. Um, I'm not saying I'm an academic, I just thoroughly enjoyed myself there. One of the things I loved about uh, history is the complete mystery which surrounds events. But my, my, my real I always liked historical novels. I, I was brought up on Walter Scott, Victor Hugo, I just loved them. Yeah, if it, um, Rosemary Sutcliffe, Henry Treese, um, Dickens, anything that took me back into history. Now, when I was at Oxford, I got into trouble because my supervisor, God bless him, pointed out to me that I was supposed to be writing a learned treatise, not a novel. And uh, I think he really had me summed up uh, because I'm intent to still do that medieval barons and lords were no different from the mafia today. They were a powerful group. Anyway, I did my thesis on a very remarkable woman called Isabella. She was wife of Edward II. She was a daughter of Philip of France, who destroyed the Templars. Um, and she put up with her husband's various escapades for about 20 years. In 1325, she fell foul of Hugh Dispenser, a new favourite at court. He's an ancestor of Diane Spencer. Um, we don't know what really happened. I suspect that Tudor Spencer wanted to get into bed with the Queen. There's a reference in a letter by the Pope to Spencer said he's heard something which he finds very difficult to accept. Isabella hated him and kept him at arm's distance. She then fled to France back to her brother, um, and there she joined an English exile, Roger Mortimer, who'd also fallen foul of Dispenser. Anyway, Cut a long story short, they invaded England. Uh, Isabella moved slowly at first, but the, the country rose to support her, so she marched on London. Then she took a, a, a detour to the West Country, where she caught Hugh Dispenser and her husband. She sent her husband to Barclay Castle in Gloucestershire. Hugh Dispenser, she executed at Hereford in a most horrific fashion while she had breakfast and watched. He was hanged, drawn, and quartered. Edward was uh, put into Berkeley Castle. According to the chroniclers, on September the 21st, the anniversary is coming soon, 1327, assassins entered the king's cell, turned him over on his face, and thrust a red-hot poker up into his innards. He was then... Uh, so he, he died. Um, uh, naturally, sorry. Uh, he was then given a very lavish burial in Gloucester, nearby Gloucester Cathedral. And even today, you can visit the the tomb there, 
Purbeck marble, absolutely marvellous example of medieval architecture and, and, uh, and carving. And that was it. Uh, Edward was dead, Isabella was with her lover, um, everything was tickety-boo, but Mortimer had ideas, and he upset and alienated Isabella's eldest son, the future Edward III, the future warrior king. Basically, Mortimer was arrested in a coup d'etat one night in, at Nottingham Castle, he was, uh, the king sent him south for a fair trial and then to hang him. Mortimer was gagged throughout his trial. He was the first man to be hanged at Tyburn and he hung there for three days naked. Isabella is supposed to have had a nervous breakdown. So that's the story in the history books. However, in 1341, Edward III, Edward II's son, receives a letter. Your father's still alive and I've heard his confession. And I thought, could he? Did he? Possible. We know the castle was stormed on at least two occasions. The corpse wasn't really given a good scrutiny. So anyway, I thought, no, there's a novel here. So I wrote my first novel, Death of a King, and um, took it from there. I suggested that Edward II did escape, went to Ireland, then to northern Italy to the monastery of St. Alberto de Butrio in the north. Yes, that started me on uh, this idea of medieval mystery, which I love. And I love the medieval period because it's a period of contrast. You've got this beautiful Gothic architecture, marvellous cathedral, thousands of tons of mystery hanging in the air there for hundreds of years. Uh, tiled floors, statues, paintings, triptychs. Then you leave the church, you see a, a gallows with two or three people hanging from it by the neck. And what, what catches me about the medieval period is the bustling energy. You know, people read English, read. Chaucer captures it in his prologue to the Canterbury Tales. You know, all off on a pilgrimage in April. You know, let's go to Canterbury. Let's have a, a really, it's a jolly boy's outing. You know, it's, you get all, these, all these mysterious characters, sort of the, the pardoner, the miller. Um, and this, that's a path in to a world which I find absolutely fascinating. And of course, the greatest challenge, or the greatest insult, or the greatest offence one can commit is murder. Basically, a murder says, I will murder you, Michael, and then I will wipe my lips and I will pretend to be totally and utterly innocent. That's a challenge. You know, it goes right back to the beginning of time when God says to Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, I don't know where he is. Cain knows full well where he is. He killed him. Yes? So, I, you know, my novels about the sons and daughters of Cain, people who think they can wipe out a life and walk away. And it's a challenge. And so um, I had a clerk, Hugh Corbett. You see, the, the, the clerks of the medieval period, they were usually graduates of Oxford and Cambridge, the halls there. They entered the royal service. The king depended on them very heavily. Yeah, They were called mailed clerks. They often fought in battle. Um, but they were men usually of integrity. They were, they, were, they were chosen by the king, promoted by the king, and they were totally devoted to the crown. So if you wanted to uh, investigate something, then you, you send them on your clerks. Now, Hugh Corbett's based on a real character, John Drockensford. Drockensford was a local boy from the West Country who made good. I've seen the records. His parents were absolutely proud of him. John was, was you know, he was a high He rose to become a high-ranking civil servant. I came across Drockensford 
because in 1305, the, the, the gangs of London, led by one man, Richard Pudlicott, decided to break into the Royal Treasury. Now, the Royal Treasury wasn't in the tower. The crown jewels were kept in the crypt of Westminster Abbey. And this is still there, below ground, uh, spiral staircase. Half the staircase was removed. You had to have a wooden staircase put in so you could continue your journey down. Everything was there. You name it, with the jewels, the crowns, including the, the dagger that uh, an assassin in the, in the Middle East had tried to kill the king with, uh, the, uh, the Guild of Assassins, the uh, group of assassins. Anyway, all the treasure was down there. Pudlicott, Pudlicott corrupted the monks. He brought in booze at night, the wine, the ladies of the town, you know, chat, 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 watching telly, all the rest, yeah? And a mobs, meanwhile, his mates outside were digging furiously. Because the, the, the crypt had one week, and you can still see it today. It had a, a window with iron bars down. They chipped away at the cement to which the iron bars were, were, were embedded and managed basically to create a gap, just force the bars back. And then they could literally slide down into the crypt. They got in, they got in, they nicked the stuff. Some of them were drunk. They dropped some of it on the way out and they fled. Edward the First, this is the um, Edward the First of Fort Scott's uh, Braveheart fame, the famous film. He went berserk. He, he had a furious, horrific temper, as his son found out. But Henry, uh, Edward, sorry, sends Drockensford down to Westminster to investigate. He knows there's something very wrong. The whole of the underworld of London's gone silent. So what he, he does, he, he teams up with the constable of the Tower of London, an old soldier, a favourite of Edward I, and they literally move around London and panelling juries, like a grand jury system. What do you know about the robbery? And you get all sorts of people singing all sorts of songs. You know, you get someone saying, oh, yes, Cecily the courtesan, she received a necklace from Brother X of Westminster Abbey so that she would become his friend. Now, you can read between the lines of what friend means. Um, and Drockersford closes a gap. He's forcing the, the outlaws, and eventually Pudlicott breaks cover. He um, flees for, for, for sanctuary in a church. All these elements of our medievalists says, I'm in church now, you can't touch me. Drockersford, however, is determined. He pays some men. He says, look, never mind what the church says. Never mind about excommunication. You get in there, nick him, and bring him out to me. To do that, Pudlicott's then taken to the tower to be tried before a special commission. He's found guilty, and he's taken to a wheelbarrow down to us, back down to Westminster, where he's hanged. Some people claim that he was then skinned, skinned, and the skin pinned to a door in Westminster Abbey as a warning to the monks. Now that is not Paul Doherty fiction. That happened. That really, I've seen the documents. Yeah, and these people were having a glorious time of it. And they turned on each other. I've come across a confession by one John Rippinghale. Rippinghale was a, a, a typical underworld character of the Middle Ages. Former priest, clerk on the run, wanted here, there, there. And he tries to save his skin, literally, by confessing to a whole series of crimes that never, never committed. And he gives a view of the plot, which never, ever occurred. So, Michael, what I'm saying is, and I hope you can follow me, is... You take an incident like the great Jew, Jew robbery and you've got everything there. I mean, you know, you, you wouldn't believe it. it it's, it's better than fiction. 
Yes, these people lying, fighting, betraying, and all of them displaying quite incredible courage. Now, that is a marvellous uh, forum in which they investigate medieval murder mysteries. And Dockers firm becomes Hugh Corbett. Hugh Corbett's the clerk. All clerks are a dagger man. They always had a hitman. And Corbett has this in the Randolph at Newgate. Former felon, a man who knows the underworld, knows London, quick on his feet, uh, able swordsman, a dagger man, uh, someone who watches his master's back. Uh, these two were very much like a, a marshal in the Wild West. Yeah, and they had some complete power. Because what they'd be doing, they'd carry a commission with the King's seal on. Yeah, or they'd even have a, have a document that said, um, whatever the, the, the bearer of this document wants, give it to him. Whatever he asks you a question, answer him. Um, so that's the world I moved in. And, and there's Corbett. And of course, there's, there's Athelstan. Athelstan, again, the, the church, the, the state, the crown, was dependent on priests. Priests were learned and educated. And I thought this combination of characters with Cranston, the Lord High Coroner, and his secretarius, Athelstan. And Athelstan, his parish priest, because there's a story behind him, of this parish in Erkins, St. Erkins Wall, which is full of every kind of villain under the sun. You must remember, these were men who'd fought in France. They'd fought with the, the, the armies of, of uh, the Crown. And they were not known for their finesse, their care or their compassion, and they came home. So all of these parishioners have stories which you can activate whenever you want. Now, on your website, there's a picture of you receiving the OBE, Order of the British Empire. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, I, I got it because of my good looks. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first guess. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Plus, uh, we'll get you. Um, no, far from it. Uh, I, I think I received it uh, because of uh, contribution to, to education, including my novels. It was a wonderful, wonderful morning. Her Majesty was very gracious. Buckingham Palace was lovely. I can always say I've been to the toilet at Buckingham Palace at least five times just to see what it was like. It was very good. Um, uh, and it, it, was, it, was, it was a great day out. That, you know, it was, it was lovely to receive. It's a great honour. And so, I, you know, I'm grateful for it. I'm also cognizant that, you know, probably I'd be also being rewarded for other people's work. But... Uh, um, it, it, it was an honour, and it was it was lovely to meet the Queen. I mean, to actually shake the hands of a woman who you know met the Kennedys, crushed off all the great, the good, and not so good of our of the twentieth, twenty first century. Lovely. Many like myself love medieval settings for stories, especially for mysteries. Would you describe the setting for the Hanging Tree? What era are we talking about, and what's going on in England in terms of politics and cultural life? It's the winter of thirteen eighty two. There's the great revolt of 1381, the Peasants' Revolt, has been really and cruelly crushed. Yeah, the lords of the soil, the great ones, are in power again. John of Gaunt is the regent for the young King Richard II. London's recovering. Uh, many of the leaders of the, of the uh, revolt have either legged it, ran, or have been hanged. Uh, the Hanging Tree is a... Basically, it's... It, it, it's two murder stories interlocked. It's, one is the theft of money from Westminster. And again, um, thievery was common. I, and I'm glad to be able to do it because, as you know, in London now, we've got what's called Lombard Street. That's where the bankers were. And the Crown depended on these bankers for money. 
basically uh, the Crown's going to pay money back, the money's taken. Meanwhile, Athelstan has got problems of his own in, in, in Southwark. He's also been challenged by a series of murders in a rather gruesome tavern known as the Hanging Tree. And that's as far as I want to say that. You know, it's just these two worlds are, are interlinked, yes? Um, it's, about, it's fast moving. Um, violence becomes personal. People do not want Athelstan to interfere. Uh, I try to take my reader and say, look, let's walk through medieval London and you're going to hear stories that you, you know, will fascinate you. I want someone to say, yes, I went back in time with Paul Doherty. That's what a hanging tree is. Athelstan is probably my favourite of your characters in your various series. Tell us about him. He's a complex character, very complex. He is, again, uh, son of a yeoman farmer, sort of the, 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 the backbone of England. Uh, like all young men then, were attracted by the wars in France. Uh, and he takes his brother off with him. Of course, the wars in France were not really the wars in France. They were hard, bitter battles, particularly in Athelstan's era, where the English were on their back foot and, 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 and being defeated. Um, Athelstan took his brother Francis there. Uh, his brother gets killed. Athelstan comes home. His parents, of course, are heartbroken. Uh, Athelstan then undergoes some sort of uh, metamorphosis, a character change, a repentance. He, he holds himself responsible for his brother's death. He journeys around, we you know, like the one I'm writing now. He does have an affair. He does meet women. He is attracted, is very much attracted to women, as, as we found out in the novel with the woman Benedicta in the parish. Um, but really, Athelstan is devoted. He, has, he believes he has a vocation to the priesthood. He then joins the Dominican order. Dominicans, literally, Dominicanes, hounds of God. They ran the Inquisition, but there were also people who worked with the poor. They, they blended in with the poor. And Athos is one, only one of these. And his, he, he, what he says to his order, I want to do something really sort of basic, radical. And so the headquarters of the Dominicans are Blackfriars across the Thames. We've just got a place for you. Yeah. A parish for which no one will volunteer. So Nicholas off he goes. Um, he's a complex character. He believes in the basic goodness of human, a man, but he says you've got to be prudent. You know, you, you've got to be watchful. You've got to be careful. Um, and he he works there. He um, he buries the dead. He celebrates mass, and of course he has these parish councils. Which, which did exist. And uh, like today, people took them very seriously. You know, they, the matters of the parish, where would a statue go? And above all, of course, what Athels and Dreads are the plays. They love mystery plays. And of course, there'd be a debate over who would play what. And of course, their knowledge of scripture wasn't very good. Yeah? In this present novel, I'm saying, uh, what can they, the dumb collector believes a heron married Pontius Pilate. No, 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 you've got it wrong. <laughs> this is the way we do it. And, and, and then this, you know, relic sellers appearing. No, I mean, um, somebody said there was enough wood of the true cross to build a fleet of ships, you know. You, know, you, get, you, get, you get the pathos, you get the, the tragedies. Um, and, and Athelson blends in with this. Um, he likes his little comfort, he's got his own little house. He's got a cat, which is, or, which is adopted him, Bonaventure. He's got an old horse, Philomel. He's got Hubert the Hedgehog. Um, he's, got a, he's got a massive cemetery to, 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 to manage, which he finds really daunting. 
especially when two of his parishioners, Cecily the courtesan and Clarissa, spend most of their time in, 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 in the cemetery entertaining their clients. So you've got all this is all going on all the time, you know. Um, I, I enjoy writing about it. I saw in your biography that you had studied for the priesthood. Does that background inform your portrayal of Athelstan? So, yeah, I mean, I did theology, philosophy, canon law. Um, I thought I had a vocation. I mean, I came from a you know, typical Irish Catholic family. I soon found out I hadn't. Nevertheless, I enjoyed the experience. It's strange, isn't it, Michael? A lot of what I read there appears in my novels now, you know, particularly about church, about sanctuary, about canon law, about priests. Um, benefit of clergy. That's, a, that's, a, that's another wonderful thing about many up here. Michael, if we could recite the first line of Psalm 50, have mercy on me, O God, in your great kindness, in your infinite compassion, brought out my offense, we were home and dry, they couldn't hang us. Yeah, that was benefit of clergy. Because uh, the church is very strict, strict on this, following the death of murder of Beckett, you do not touch clerics, you do not touch priests. Um, so th- th- this... Yeah, a lot of what I learned, a lot of what I studied, some of the homilies, uh, some of the saints I met in, it, in the books, um, a lot of the debates about morality. Yeah, it, 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 it provides a good layer, the novels, yes. Now, everyone knows the best mysteries are locked room mysteries, and you are the king of locked room mysteries. In The Hanging Tree, you set up a particularly amazing scenario. Would you describe that for us? I, I don't want to give the solution, Michael. It's just basically they have to go that, through one door, down one set of steps, and through another door into a treasure chamber. Yes? Those who commit the murders get in, get out with the wealth and the, and the murder, but the doors are locked still. So all I can say, Michael, it's not, I'm not saying it's, it's easy. If you sit and watch people, I, I was sitting in a, a tell. Uh, recently, in the, in, you know, in the entrance hall, waiting for someone. And I watch people giving their keys back. You know what I mean? All it needs, Michael, you see, pick up the wrong set of keys. Yes. I go upstairs, I unlock the door, I wait for you to return. Yeah. I, I, I'm a hitman, I carry out the hit. Yes. I close the door, lock it, take the key down, you know, put it on the counter, the clerk takes it up, throws What I'm saying, Michael, is that that's, that's just a, a fairly, uh, I don't know, Simple example, lock, the, the real locker room mysteries, by definition, aren't really locker room mysteries, are they? Because someone must have got out somehow, yeah? The trick is, what we think we see, we don't see. And what are simple gestures can often be extremely important. Handing over a key. Well, look, Michael, test it. Next time you're in a, in a hotel, you know, you're sitting in the atrium, you're sitting in the entrance hall, yeah? Watch what people do. I've seen recently, just thrown, I was in Malta, I watched him put keys down, walk away. And it, it's these little, that, that is where you fasten. I mean, uh, oh, maybe I should, yeah, yeah. Like there's one where someone's poisoned in the room. Yes, this person, this is what I was tackling last night, I was, just, I was actually lying in bed looking at the ceiling. Um, this person's poisoned, it's definitely a poison. It's definitely one of these common... The most powerful poisons, uh, Michael, are was grown in your garden. Yeah, some of the most deadliest there out there. Now, we know that when he went in that room, he had a goblet of wine. We know that he drank the wine there. We know that someone else took a sip from that cup. So for no ill effect. But the victim locks the door and he is found definitely poisoned. So how does the poison enter the cup? 
Oh, tell you about that. Oh, now we'll have to wait for you to publish the solution. Now, in addition to being set in the medieval era and to involving a locked room, your mysteries also possess a third essential. They have fair, satisfying resolutions. Thank you. Some authors resort to fanciful solutions or to facts hidden from readers, or they basically make every character suspect. So it's a roll of the dice as to which one is really guilty. How do you go about constructing your mysteries? I think you've got to be fair to your reader. You know, I think the reader says, oh, I missed that. You know, yeah, of course, yeah. I don't think it's right for the, the readers to think, well, you know, that could have been anybody. Yes. Um, you know, Ronald Knox, the Catholic priest, he wrote, was it the Ten Commandments of Writing a Murder Mystery? And you've got to be logical. It's unfair to have the murder someone mentioned on page one and then never mentioned again. Um, but it's taxing. I'm always thinking, I mean, goodness, you know, the number of times I'm thinking, I think about murder, Michael, it's a good job you can't be arrested for that. Otherwise, I'd be doing a life sentence. Yes. So you're also a headmaster in addition to being an author. When do you find time to write and how much time are you able to devote to writing? I, I, I had a written report, psychologist, I got kind of, we spend 20% of our waking time just thinking. I said, like, that's quite a big chunk. And what I do, I, I just, I think, and I, do, I get the plot up here, like the murder of you just described the poison. I think, yeah, yes, that's good. And then I just make sure that I use the time properly. Yeah, I write my novel, I handwrite it, then I dictate to my, my secretary at home. And I like doing that because you can hear the words coming out. You can hear music, words have a music. You make sure that you're not using the same word two or three times. Yes. Um, he had a passion. He had a passion. He had, you know, trying to do so. He had a fervor, you know. Um, that's the way I, I just, bearing in mind, Mike, don't forget that murder mysteries, by definition, tend to be between about 80 to 100,000 words. Any longer, you start thinking, well, the detective must be thick or stupid. You're taking so long. Um, and the other thing, I am slowing up simply because I try to make each novel unique. I don't think it's right for novel three to reappear in novel 10. It's, yes, you've got to have a unique plot, unique setting, different things. You know, like in this next, I'm doing my next Athelson now, Sir John Cranston's challenge to a duel, which is quite, someone calls him a liar. Yeah, and that has to be answered. Yes. Um, and at the same time, there's a master thief loose in London. Uh, oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, there's one other series I'm doing. It's not so much murder mystery. Uh, I'm fascinated by Richard III, his brother, Edward IV. And, you know, I, I've got a new series, Margaret Beaufort. Yeah? And it grew because, again, this it, I've, I've been thinking this for decades. In 1471, the Yorkist armies in England, under Edward and Richard, the future Richard III, they smashed the opposition. They absolutely annihilated them. At two great battles in 1471, one was at Tewkesbury in the West Country, one was in Barnet, just north of London, but not far from where I'm sitting now. And Edward IV brought to battle, destroyed them. He didn't take prisoners. Yeah, these the, 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 the Lancastrians fled for sanctuary in Tewkesbury Abbey, and Edward didn't give a damn. He had them dragged out the following day, decapitated. Edward the Yorkist was supreme. Yeah, Edward IV had a lovely wife, Elizabeth. He had two sons, daughters. He was well stocked theirs. Yes, he'd crushed all opposition. However, by 1483, 
all this crumbled. All this crumbled. And eventually, the Yorkers collapsed at Bosworth in 1485, where, as you know, Richard III was defeated and killed, and the Lancastrians, Henry Tudor, swept to power. And I thought, somebody was behind this. I get this impression of someone deep plotting York's destruction. And I chose Margaret Beaufort, mother of Henry's, who was a very, very bright lady, very sharp, very learned. She founded colleges at Cambridge and very clever. And she was aided by a clerk called Christopher Urswick. And some people maintain Christopher Urswick is the father of our modern secret service. Yeah, but we do know that Margaret, you know, then she, she was very cunning. And I, I, I'm thinking the destruction of the Orcus is laid at, at her door. She is this pious lady, you know, that, doing good, but all the time. There's really two Margarets. One is the pious lady of court, and the other is the Lancastrian uh, uh, princess working very hard for her son, as he did succeed to the throne. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Urswick and I enjoyed Margaret. Now, we know chefs don't like giving away their recipes, but would you, as, a, as an author, give us some insight into your method? Do you work out the plot from beginning to end, or do you leave room for surprises? Uh, do you write in an open-ended way? What, what is your process of writing like? You get a main line. You get a main line, I admit, something to carry the plot. You must have enough to carry it forward, Michael. That's why many people give up writing. They reach halfway, and it's like a plane running out of fuel that they can't take it further. So what you do is you also let the story take its turn, and take, its, take its time. So things, I've just finished a bargain at Beaufort, and, and, and as I wrote it, a character that was a, an ordinary character began to emerge as someone very important, yes? And I, and I think I've done it, I think it's, so in other words, to answer your question, you have a pretty good idea where you're going. What one of the funds of writing, you think, oh, I'll do, I'll do a, you know, a turn on this, I'll, I'll contradict, you know, I'll do this, do that, but well, that person can die, but well, that person can be removed. So that's part of the joy of writing. If it's too planned, if I plan it too much, I might be able to know the, the, the path, but so does everybody else. You, you want to mislead, you're going to de- deliberately mislead people, I'm sorry, yeah? You're going to entertain them, so that they think, oh, crack it, I didn't know what happened. Yes? How do you make sure, you, I make sure the characters are dealing with are uh, around and that they too have private lives, private thoughts, etc. I hope that helps, Michael. Paul, it's been a delight spending time with you and talking about The Hanging Tree. Thank you for being with us. Michael, you're a gentleman and a scholar. As Athelson would say, Pax et Bonum. Yes, Pax et Bonum. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Historical Fiction, the channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>